Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine and the world one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I drink because of colonialism. I'm Anne, and I drink because of capitalism, which is just colonialism's little baby sister who nobody likes. So... This week is going to be an interesting one because we're talking about um, some tough topics. But before we get into that, let's kick off with our cheers and jeers segment. So, Drea, do you want to get us started? Cheers to Pride Month. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to all my LGBTQIA plus sisters, brothers, gender nonconforming family. I see you, I hear you, I love you, and you make my world a better place every day, and every month should be Pride Month, as far as I'm concerned. So um, I've been doing a lot of reading by LGBTAQIA plus writers, and you know, just continuing to do that work and learn about new ways to be a strong ally. Um, so I've been really investing my time in that this month, which is rad. And as we look f- towards July, I would just like a- to give a big jeers to the 4th of July. I hate it. I hate the food. I hate the fireworks. I hate the children. I hate the weird patriotism. I just, I know that makes me like the worst Grinch on the planet, but I fucking hate it. I'm over it. This goes along with my I hate summer from last episode. So just a continuation of the theme. Here we are. Get some earplugs for you and your dog. Oh, my poor dog. My dog hates the fireworks. He hates them. He hates them. And I'm like, I know. I know, buddy. I get it. I get it. Anyways, what about you, Anne? What are you cheersing and jeersing this week? Um, so this cheers goes out to one of our loyal friends, um, one of my coworkers and friend of the pod, who is currently on a much-deserved two-week vacation. Oh, love that for her. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to shout her out, not by name, um, but to shout her out and also just to shout out the concept of two-week vacations, because I feel like it actually takes that much time to really disconnect from your job and from regular life and to to kind of get the sort of break that I think we all need after the last year and a half. So I'm really glad that she's taking that time. I'm really looking forward to taking um, some time like that myself um, in the later part of the summer. So just, you know, Cheers Cheers to time off. Cheers to two-week vacations. If you've got it, take it. We're only on this planet one time, and you deserve a full 14 uninterrupted days without dealing with your employer. Awesome. That's just Reason my feeling. bullshit. And you just confessed something to me about two-week vacations and your history with them. Yeah, I actually only I only ever had my first kind of two full weeks off at one time last year around the holidays. Um, the the office was closed for one week at Christmas, and then I had planned to take time off at that time, so I just extended the time off that I was having. Um, and yeah, that was I mean I'm in my 30s, and that was the first time I'd ever been able to take that kind of significant break at one time, which to me just goes back to you know 
capitalism and probably colonialism telling us that we have to work all the time and um, you know that that productivity is you know next to godliness or whatever. Um, it's not it's so weird. You deserve time off. You deserve a real break. I'm also having this discussion with some of my colleagues and some of the folks I manage who are just like, oh, so much, so much to do. Don't know if I can take time off. Yes, yes, you can. Everything's fine. No one's gonna die. Stuff is late. It's late. I don't know what to tell you. Just such a weird relationship that I think that we have in the United States to this bizarre Puritan work ethic that actually isn't all that protective because everyone's stressed out, anxious, and mad. Um, yeah, which kind of goes into what we've talked about before with like the U.S. puritanical relationship to wine and drinking culture and, uh, you know, sort of this idea of like work hard, play hard, as opposed to like just fucking enjoy shit. Yeah. Don't work that hard, but also don't play that hard so that you like ruin your liver. As opposed to, you know what? Have that glass of wine with your lunch, girl. You deserve it. You deserve it. Yeah, it's fine. Take a nap in the afternoon. You deserve uh, it. After the wine. So, or before. Whatever you yeah. want. Whatever you want. Yep. Uh, oh, I can already tell this episode's going to be good. All right. What's your jeers? <laughs> <laughs> We've got our rage on and we're ready to nap. So ready. Um, My jeers this week. So you already know this because we talked yesterday, but I have this like little red spot on my face that I thought was a zit, but it's not going away and it doesn't act like a zit. Blah, blah, blah. No one really cares. I care. But I care. It just is like. It's kind of, it's fine, but it's also annoying. And I know I need to deal with it, mostly because you told me I need to deal with it. Um, And it's just like, you know how when you're an adult and you just have things that you have to do constantly, like there is constantly a to-do list of like, not just work shit that you have to take care of, but like shit in your personal life you have to take care of. Now there's this little red spot on my face that I have to take care of. And I just want to say to that little red spot, cheers, cheers to you. Also, I'm totally going to out your ass right now, too. So we're we're talking. We're just having our normal Kvetch cheese mess session. And Anne tells me about this red dot because and the re- only reason it comes up is because she's like, hey, what do you know about concealer? What kind should I get? And how do I do this? And I was like, bitch, the question you should be asking is, do you know a good dermatologist? Like, that's what we need to be doing. Take care of your face. Take care of your face. If you learned anything from this episode, everyone, take care of your face. You only got one. Take care of it. I want to add my second cheers to you because you always are you always are about getting to the root of the problem, um, which in this case is seeing a dermatologist and not buying uh, more yeah. concealer. Yeah. So You're welcome. thank you. I try. I try. Once in a while, I have a really good idea that contributes to me being an actual adult human. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I feel like we're both coming in kind of tired, kind of hot. No, hot was not what I meant to say. I feel like we're both coming I in. I mean, we hot. are hot. We are we are coming in hot. Coming in hot. We're coming in tired. Uh we're coming in with some like upper level anxiety. Mm, yeah, we got we're gonna hash out a whole lot on this episode. <laughs> Let's get into it. What are our shenanigans this week, Dre? So finding shenanigans for this week was a challenge to say the least. You know, this is technically our 4th of July 
episode, uh, which we're really crouching in a discussion about colonialism. And we're highlighting an Indigenous winemaker and winery that's really working against some of those those narratives that are often so dominant, not just in the wine world, but in culture in general, Western culture in general. So we were like, well, that doesn't exactly like lend itself to shits and giggles a whole lot. So what can we do for our shenanigans segment that that makes sense? And I thought what we could do today is is sort of just talk about some of the foolery that is afoot. And so these are not our shenanigans as much as they are others' shenanigans, and mostly colonialist shenanigans. So, uh, Anne, I thought I would just kind of open this up and ask you how you feel about different states in the old union trying to essentially outlaw ethnic studies and critical race theory. I feel like that's a conversation that's being had all over the place. Well, I think it's maybe important first, because I feel like this doesn't happen a lot in the conversations about ethnic studies and critical race theories, theory to actually define what is critical race theory? What is ethnic studies? What is the actual practice here because I think people who are just running their mouth off without knowing what they're talking about don't always realize what <laughs> what they're talking about. Um, you know, you can take those words together and if you don't know what it means, you can just make up a lot of shit. So I wanted to just really quickly define critical race theory. It is a concept that was really developed by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. And it's really about interrogating the role of race and racism in society. So it is it is something that we we can do. It is something it is a way to examine the world that we live in um, and the way to see how institutionalized racism is perpetuated all the way to to present time. So it's really a way to look at our current period of history as well as the past in a way that that examines the the context of race. Um, so it recognizes that race intersects with other identities, including sexuality, gender identity. It also recognizes that there is a legacy of racism, slavery, segregation, and second-class citizenship on Black Americans and people of color that hasn't been widely acknowledged, you know, really, I think, before the present. So that's, I think, just an important context. I think when people think about critical race theory, often the, the focus is on that word critical as and conflating it with criticism. That's not what this is. Um, this is really understanding the role that race plays. Um, and, you know, it should come as no surprise that when you asked me what I thought about the the people trying to outlaw it or, you know, remove it from practice, that gets a massive eye roll from me. That is some straight up bullshit, regressive, <laughs> reactionary bullshit nope. that should come as no surprise to anybody that this is happening. Well, and it's really um, interesting to me, too, because there is such a huge reluctance to even have these conversations. And in the reading and the listening I've been doing about 
this kind of this movement to disrupt critical race theory, ethnic studies uh, curriculum in schools across the board from, you know, the little the little youngins all the way up to universities um, where ethnic studies departments are traditionally underfunded anyways. I can vouch for this because I have one of my degrees is in ethnic studies. My PhD is in cultural studies with uh, an emphasis in critical race theory and American studies. So, you know, I got I got I know a few things. I've read a few things here and there. But it's the reluctance to even have these conversations and this notion that somehow that by talking about it and acknowledging this very complex history, that that somehow perpetuates racist behavior and racist actions, when in fact, it does the opposite, right? It dismantles that because we're normalizing having the conversations about systemic roots of injustice, and a history that is very much entrenched with racial identity politics. And so it, it seems it's so counterintuitive to me to to want to band it. And in my current position at my university, uh, one of the things that I work on is developing diversity, equity, and inclusion competencies for general education core. And I also work with training faculty. I just designed a training program for our faculty for methods of normalizing conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion in their classrooms. And so all of the work that I do professionally outside of my professional drinking for this podcast, you know, really is dedicated to normalizing these conversations, normalizing these, what we have thought of as alternative histories or hidden histories as part of that canonical experience of United States history. And it's wild to see the other side of, of, everything that I believe in, get articulated into an argument. And Abbott, Texas, looking at you, looking at you. I think there are also ways, and we've talked about this before as friends, you know, I am, I am a white woman um, with a family that comes from the primarily the Midwest. And I can trace really clearly the ways that colonialism and genocide have particularly benefited my family. And I think sometimes where where I have, I don't want to say empathy, but where I feel like I have an understanding of some of this pushback against critical race theory, against ethnic studies, is that I think there is a pain and shame that white people need to get over because it's nowhere close to the pain and shame that we have uh, perpetuated on people of color. Um, But there is this way that our, our history has been told to us with us being the heroes, you know, with settlers coming in and creating, creating a country out of quote unquote, nothing, which obviously is, (laughs) is a problem in and of itself. And so this critical race theory, ethnic studies, forces us 
white people, people in a position of power to re-examine our history and the role that we played, like not just not a long time ago either, like within recent memory to perpetuate these national fantasies and mythologies. Yeah, yeah to perpetuate these national national fantasies and the ways that the ways that the advantages and privileges that I have experienced, they don't come from nowhere. They come on the the backs and the violence that has been done to people of color in this country. And I think that's something that I'm reckoning with. And I think it's something that my family is starting to talk about. But it's that is, I think, where this desire to to not critically face your own past and to reconcile with it and to understand it and to atone for it comes from. Um, but we can't, you know, we can't make progress until we've, we've done that. We can't move forward until we, we faced these, the issues of our past and our present. Right. And I, you know, I think too, in the last four or five years, as we've seen this tide of right wing reactionaryism really come to the forefront and get, um, you know, personified by the former president who shall not be named. Right. You see that conversation changing from this idea of white guilt, which, you know, I I do want to acknowledge and not discount because I think part of the problem with not normalizing the conversation is that those feelings of systemic guilt get mapped on to people personally, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's a difference um, between acknowledging a set of privileges and understanding the systemic benefits that come with them and then feeling guilty. Like those are two different things. But I think, you know, because we haven't figured out how to have these complex conversations and we're not taught necessarily how to do that in our school system, um, it gets it gets translated as guilt into those feelings, right? And what I've, I've noticed in the last four or five years, as we've seen this reactionary tide, is that white guilt becomes white rage. And so it's yep. not about feeling guilty anymore. It's about feeling angry and disenfranchised. And that was something that we really saw kind of at the end of the Obama era and then, you know, post-Obama. And Obama himself is sort of this figure that gets coded as a symbol that racism is over, right? I mean, you know, I remember when he was elected, obviously, it was a huge milestone for for so many of us. But there was also this really insidious narrative that, look, America doesn't have a race problem anymore. We've elected a black president. Well, okay, let's talk about this. This is a little bit more complex than than that, right? And I think it's that level of complexity that people are are really resistant to engaging with. And as a educator and an academic, that just makes me want to bang my head into the wall. And, you know, as a, a person of color, um, in part indigenous person navigating the world, it just like, ugh, it's just really frustrating. So on the flip side of our shenanigans today, I thought we could say a big fuck that to enduring forms of colonialism and really focus on what we can do to sort of advocate for 
um, diverse voices in the wine industry and in all industries and kind of challenge ourselves and each other and our listeners to really um, think about these issues in complex, concrete terms. So today, I want to start us off with, and, and this was actually Anne, your suggestion, but I thought we could start off with a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we are operating and living on largely unceded indigenous lands and ancestral homes that have been and continue to be inhabited by indigenous people and linked to indigenous narratives, traditions, and cultural practices. As part of our commitment to celebrating the heritage of indigenous America, this 4th of July and always, we support indigenous winemakers, Thank them for their contributions to the field and their commitment to making the industry more accessible to BIPOC. So um, we are really pleased to be able to feature uh, Kita Wine today, uh, which is owned and operated by the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. And we're going to get into that a little bit today and talk a lot about their practice and their winemaker. But I also wanted to mention that, you know, there are a number of indigenous wineries that folks should check out. Um, Who knows, maybe one will make an appearance on the podcast in the future. But we've got a really diverse group of producers out there right now. I pulled these from an article that was featured in Wine uh, Enthusiast magazine recently. And we're going to go ahead and put the link to the article in our Instagram bio so you can check that out. But Uh, You know, one of the things that the article highlighted was that there are tribes in California, New Mexico, Utah, British Columbia, that have all um, created small but really successful and very uh, critically acclaimed wines over the last 10 years. And one of the things that they all have in common is that each one of these wineries has been very committed to sustainable farming practices in an effort to both invest in and continue to protect their ancestral lands and lands their own by their tribal communities. So um, Keto, which we will be talking about today, is one that's operating here in California. Uh, the article also discusses the Inameep Cellars, uh, which is owned and operated by the Osoyos Indian Band in British Columbia. Uh, there's also the Twisted Cedar Winery from the Cedar Band of Paiutes in Utah and Gruet Winery, um, which is owned by the Santa Ana Pueblo tribe in New Mexico. So um, what I think is really cool about this, too, is Utah, New Mexico, British Columbia. These are all areas that are relatively new to the winemaking scenes. So a couple episodes ago, we were talking about urban wineries and kind of how they're popping up in these really unexpected places. Um, and we've talked on the podcast several a time about climate change, how that's affected the wine industry, and how you're seeing wineries pop up in these really unexpected places. Um, everything from like, you know, Michigan to the high plains of Texas to New Mexico. I actually just drank a um, pet nat coming out of New Mexico a couple months ago, that was 
you know, surprisingly delicious and refreshing. I don't know why it was surprising. I don't know what I expected because I've never had wine from New Mexico. So, um, you know, you're really starting to see these places pop up and get on the map. So, um, check out the link in our bio. If you try any of these wines, slide into our DMs, let us know how you like them, give us some recommendations for which one to cover on the podcast. And yeah, we'd love to hear your take on it. And no hate mail. No hate mail. I don't think our readers would do that for for us with this topic, but our readers, our See? listeners. See, um, you want to be in a book. I want to be on TV. Here we are. <laughs> I also want to, before we, before we move out of the shenanigans, I want to just acknowledge the tragedy that has been revealed in recent, or revealed is maybe the wrong word, that has been getting more attention and... and um, deserves more, even more attention um, happening just north of us in Canada and the mass graves that are being found at residential schools in um, the Canadian Indian system. So I want to, um, that is beyond the topic of of our podcast today, but I think it's really important to um, recognize it, to pay attention to it. If you haven't been following that in the news, I don't think it's been getting enough attention in the U.S. system. Um, it's it's a huge tragedy. And I think, again, it goes back to the, the idea that these things in the past aren't just in the past. They're still having um, reverberations and impacts today. And I think the other thing that is important to recognize is that we in the U.S. also had a system of removing children from their homes and their families and still do. Um, And that what is happening in Canada likely also has happened here in the U.S. and deserves attention and investigation. Um, So definitely keep paying attention to that. Make your voice heard locally. Um, And, you know, I think it's this is a fun podcast that we do because we like wine, but uh, it's also a place where I think we see an opportunity to link big issues to um, to the wine that we enjoy and drink and use it as a way to um, support and recognize and lift up uh, indigenous indigenous winemakers. So thanks for choosing this wine, Drea. Anytime. So... Like Drea mentioned, we are drinking a wine from Kida, and the reason that we selected this bottle today is to celebrate the often forgotten heritage of what is now the United States and to recognize the role that indigenous winemakers have played in the process and continue to play. Uh, but Drea, what else can you tell me about uh, Kida and this particular wine? So what we're drinking today is probably one of my favorites coming out of Kida. They have a number of wines, both single varietals and blends. But the first time I had this wine, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, during the pandemic, I did a virtual tasting class with them. And so I was able to try a number of their wines. And this one has really stayed with me. So this is the 2019 Taia White Blend. And it's coming out of Santa Barbara County, and in particular, Santa Inez in California. Uh, And so the price point on this bottle is about $24, depending on the vintage. This is the the latest vintage. So that's what it is. I do believe that they still have the 2017, 2018 stock. And the ABV is or alcohol by volume is 13.5. 
4%, which is actually a little bit on the higher end for whites that we have featured on this podcast. The reason we selected Kita is, you know, one, I was already familiar with their wines and am a huge fan of what they do. I'm also a member of their wine club. I don't know if that's a conflict of interest, but I don't really care. So <laughs> it's it's all good. Kita's really kind of a landmark winery. It is the first winery and vineyard to be run solely by tribal members. And the word Kita is from the Santa Ynez Chumash indigenous language, and it translates to our valley oak. So they are really committed not only to the high quality standards of the winemaking practice, but they're also really committed to honoring their heritage through their winemaking. I have to just take a second and gush a little bit about the aesthetics of this bottle. I loved when you mentioned, when I saw in your notes that the word means our valley oak because the label actually has an oak leaf um, on it. It's very simple, very minimalist, but it's this beautiful oak leaf and kind of the the ripples and layers that you would see in in a tree. And then when I was just getting the cork out just now, they also have that that same motif on the cork. So again, the aesthetics here just really on point. Yeah, their their bottles are really beautiful. It's a very like grown up looking bottle. Um, as, a, as opposed to some of the stuff we've drank on this podcast, but... As opposed to a box You know what? Hedgehog. I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> so now that we've gushed about the bottle, what's actually inside okay, it? Okay, so the Taya is, uh, as I said, it's a white blend, and it's a Rhone-style white blend. Um, so this particular blend is comprised of three of my favorite wines, uh, varietals coming out of the Rhone Valley, Roussan, Marsan, and Grenache Blanc. And just, you know, we haven't, um, oh, I guess that hedgehog wine was from France, but we haven't talked a ton about French wines yet, um, which is something we probably should do. But um, just to give you a little background on the Rhone Valley and Rhone style whites is so the Rhone is a major river in France um, that rises in the Alps and flows south down to the Mediterranean Sea. And so some of the varieties of grapes that are from that region are things like Syrah, Grenache, Mavedra, um, Roussan, Marsan, and those are often referred to as Rhone grapes because that's where they're originally from. So regardless of their place of origin, wines made from these grapes are typically called Rhone-style wines across the globe, including here in the United States and in particular in South California Central Coast. And so you find these grapes a lot in the Central Coast because they adapt extremely well to that climate. It's very similar to the climate that you have in the Rome Valley in terms of, you know, higher elevations, cooler temperatures, and then those warmer valleys that still get that coastal um, mineral heavy breeze coming off the ocean like the Mediterranean. So um, the, the climate's perfect for growing these varietals there. 
And so that's a little bit about the style of the wine, um, but let's talk more specifically about the region and the vineyard that Aya particularly comes from. And so again, this is coming out of Santa Barbara County in the Santa Ynez Valley. Um, so that's located in the central coast of California. And I know that I have talked a lot of shit about California wines on this podcast, but we've now had two in a row. So you know what? Fuck me. It's fine. <laughs> um, and you love you love the Santa I Barbara. Do. I really um, like the Santa Barbara wine, wine country. country. So uh, this is another great reason for people to come out and take a visit. Maybe we'll do a podcast reunion up there sometime. I I would love that. I would. I'm trying so hard. I mean, Napa can still go fuck itself, but I do love the Santa Barbara Central Coast area. Okay, so a little bit to know about Santa Inez. This area has over 70 wineries and tasting rooms and is a certified American Viticultural Area, or AVA. So just as a quick reminder, that means there are, you know, rules and regulations that producers need to follow in order to indicate on their label that the wine is from Santa Inez Valley. Santa Inez is by far the largest AVA in the region. So it has about 77,000 acres of vines planted, um, and that includes about 60 different varieties. And so it's a pretty compact region. It's about 30 miles east to west, um, but it encompasses a lot of ground in terms of climate. So as I mentioned earlier, the climate in this region tends to go from chilly and foggy, and that's where you're getting, you know, your varieties like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Syrah, grapes that, you know, are a little bit more delicate, need a little bit more of those cool climates to really develop, um, to warm and dry temperatures that you really see more in the valleys. So again, this is where you're going to get your Rhone blends, your Zinfandels, your Bordeaux style wines. Um, and the soil in the small region is also very um, diverse. And so you get everything from sandy soils that drain really, really well um, there on the valley floor to silty clay shale blends that are um, in the foothills. So one of the reasons I like the wine so much from the Central Coast is, again, they have that Mediterranean-esque quality with some really nice minerality to them. So the specific vineyard in all of that, that this wine comes from, is called the Camp Four Vineyard. And it is situated along um, the easternmost edge of the Santa Inez Valley and just at the gateway of a region called Happy Canyon. And so Happy Canyon is really known for um, its heat and it's down in kind of the valley. And this is just on the cusp for that. And you'll like this because I know how much you like the story of names. So happy. I love names. I know. So happy. I've got two for you. So we'll talk about Happy Canyon and then we'll talk about Camp Four in a minute here. Yeah, I'm already nervous about Camp Four. Uh, okay. Well, you know, it's we're going to get into it a little bit. Happy Canyon got its name during the Prohibition era. Um, and folks would say, go ahead and take a trip up to Happy Canyon. And it was a region that was still making wines, like, under the table. Um, and so one of the features of the region is that 
there tends to be a high magnesium content in the soil. And again, those hot, hot daytime temperatures that will peak in the 90s in the height of summer. So what you get is low yield, but late ripening grapes. Um, and so these tend to be really special limited wines that come out of this area. Um, Camp 4 was first purchased by Fez Parker, a legendary winery in the region and one of the oldest producers in that AVA of Santa Inez. Fez Parker was an American film and television actor best, knows for, best known for his portrayal of Davy Crockett in the Walt Disney TV series. And then he became a winemaker and resort owner-operator um, after his acting career. So um, Parker originally purchased the 1,400-acre property and planted about 256 acres of grapes on the land in 1999. And their first harvest was in 2003. So by all standards, it's a pretty young vineyard. Um, Fez Parker is a like you go to their wine, I've been to their winery, and it's very entrenched in kind of that narrative of the Old West, which I actually think makes this even funnier, to be quite honest with you. It's like, mm, really? Okay. So the name of the vineyard, Camp Four, um, refers to that parcel of land at being originally being the fourth stop on the passage from San Francisco to Yuma, Arizona during the stagecoach days, which is a whole other like haunting bullshit story that we don't have time for, but that's the short of it. So that's where the name of Camp Four Vineyards comes from. So even within this indigenous wine, you know, we have this, this name that's kind of a legacy of the colonial process of westward expansion and development, which I think is fascinating. Um, I also think it's amazing that the Chumash had been like, you know what, we're going to keep that because it's part of the story of this place and part of the historical narrative of this vineyard. So, so when did the when did the Chumash take over from Davy Crockett? Okay, so you know, redemption was definitely in sight for, <laughs> to kind of wrestle this black back from Davy Crockett. Um, it was in 2010 that the Chumash purchased the property. So today, the vineyard Camp 4 is actually home to 19 different varietals focusing on Rhone and Bordeaux grapes um, and really has an ideal microclimate with a long growing season um, that that yields maximum flavor development. And the the Chumash grow all of their grapes for the vineyard on what is now tribal lands, i.e. Camp 4. Um, and Native American winemaker Tara Gomez is really at the helm of this process. And so she is such an amazing figure and such a genuinely kind person. Uh, I've had the opportunity to taste both with her and her wife. Um, her and her wife, Medea, have a label of their own called Camines to Dreams um, that's also located in the Central Coast. 
And they're just doing fantastic things with wine all the way around. Um, so I really wanted to take some time today to talk about her journey and highlight the work that she has done because without her and her vision, Kita wouldn't exist today. So Gomez um, has really been fascinated with winemaking since she was a child. And her fascination was partially fueled by her love of science and the support from her family and tribal community um, to really pursue her educational dreams and goals. So she earned a scholarship to California State University Fresno to study enology. And while she was a student, she completed an internship at Fez Parker. Um, because remember, we talked about Fez Parker being kind of one of the institutional leaders in that region. But that internship really would prove to be a pivotal experience both for her and for her Chumash community, and eventually would secure the destiny of Kita Wines. So she graduated in 1998 as one of only two women to receive a degree in enology that year. So like already at that time, she's a trailblazer. She's a badass. And she's really entering, you know, what continues to be a male dominated field of enology and the science of winemaking. So shortly after graduation, um, she actually returned to Fez Parker, where she had had her internship, and began working as an enologist there. A few years later, she moved on to Paso Robles and worked as an enologist and lab manager at J. Laura Vineyards, which again is a major producer in that region. So she was very strategic about working at wineries that were well-established, that were making wines in very traditional styles, and really took advantage of the opportunity to learn as much as she could from these places. But she also left her own imprint on them. So um, you've probably all have seen J. Lore wines on a restaurant wine list or in your grocery store. They have a very large production. And one of the things that she was really able to achieve while she was there was to help develop the quality of the wines in the vineyard and really focused on, you know, mastering some of their higher end labels. But she also had the opportunity to learn a great deal about her own winemaking style and what she wanted that to be. In 2001, while she was still working at J. Laura, she started her first label, Kalawaska Wines, and the varietals she produced were Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, Zinfandel, and Cobb Frank. Um, and from what I saw in the research, she was purchasing grapes from other growers and then was making the wine herself. But it was also during this time that she began to explore Europe and started traveling pretty extensively through Spain, France, and Germany in pursuit of new knowledge, new techniques for winemaking. So these two experiences really became kind of a gateway for the next step in her career, which was in 2008, she moved to Europe and worked there for two years to learn traditional styles of winemaking and really to figure out how to balance new and old world traditions with her own winemaking aesthetic. And so she really, you know, did her homework 
tasted a lot, worked with a lot of different folks, learned a lot about different varietals, and then was able to bring all of that back home. So when the San Inez Band of Chumash purchased Camp 4 from, from Fez Parker, at her urging, in 2010, she was hired on as the winemaker. So she talks a little bit about that process in an interview And she says, quote, it definitely took some convincing. And for the tribe, it was a big risk because they didn't know anything about winemaking and they just had to trust me. But I explained my vision of using the gifts of Mother Earth and the spirit of Santa Inez Valley to make wines that express the balance of soil, climate, location and taste. And they eventually agreed to allow me to do it for one year. So she had one year to kind of prove that this could be done. No No pressure. pressure. No pressure at all. So in that first year, Gomez managed to produce 180 cases of wine. And she immediately began to win regional awards and exceed sale expectations. So the 140-member Tribal Elder Council saw that the wine's actually could be really valuable example of their connection to the land and a way to provide for future generations. So this was not just, you know, a great expression of cultural value and sustainability, but it also, um, you know, was valued as a flourishing business. So now... They've got, you know, their 19 varietals that they grow, and they produce more than a dozen reds, whites, and rosés every year. So they've continued to kind of grow um, their practices. And when we think about sustainability, which we've talked a lot about in the wine industry because there is so much waste, um, Gomez says, nothing gets wasted. Everything we do in the vineyards and winery reflects our tribe's vision of sustainability. We rely on owls, bats, and hawks to help with our rodents and insects. We compost everything and turn it back to the land. And so, again, economic sustainable sustainability and environmental sustainability are really going hand in hand with the vision of Kita. And today they're producing about 2,000 cases a year. So that's quite a jump from the initial 180 cases. Um, they opened a very lovely tasting room in Lompoc in 2018 and they now ship wines to every state in Estados Unidos and you will find their wines pretty widely available they've done an excellent job with their marketing and you know it's also not tough to sell really great wines and so um, they're pretty ready, readily available in higher-end wine shops, restaurants, and a fun fact that I thought was kind of cool is you can purchase Kita Wines at California Adventure at Disneyland in California. <laughs> so there you go. I love <laughs> I know. that. Um, notes for our next uh, trip. Yes. <laughs> this is an amazing history, and Tara Gomez sounds like an incredible woman and an incredible winemaker and a a keeper of her uh, tribe's traditions. So thank you so much, Drea, for sharing that. I know that I mentioned a little bit about how much I like their wine label earlier, but I think you found a quote that has Tara talking a little bit about labels. So do you want to share that with us before we before we get into this bad boy? 
Yeah, um, I thought that this quote would actually be a great way to preface our tasting discussion today. Tara posted this on her Instagram this last week, and it was just so heartfelt and so beautiful that I wanted to share it. And so she, she writes, I am not defined by my labels. As an Indigenous woman in the LGBTAQIA plus community, I've encountered a lifetime of obstacles and resistance in the pursuit of my dreams to succeed in this male-dominated field. But I have also risen to the challenge. I have surrounded myself with a tight community of family, friends, and colleagues who support and encourage me when the road ahead is rough and who celebrate me for every milestone reached. Sometimes the best advocate you can have is yourself. Stay focused, be proud of your story because there isn't another like it. And when you feel lost, know that you are on the journey to becoming who you were meant to be. I just thought that those were such great sentiments that really encompass the discussions that we're having today that, you know, give a nod to Pride Month and really celebrate this idea that we have stories to tell and that those stories are important. So with that, let's raise a glass to some anti-colonial bullshit and talk about this Taya Roan style white blend. Cheers, cheers to you, to you Tara, Tara, and cheers to the Chumash tribe and Kita. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about color here. How would you describe this color? I'm also wearing a very bright neon yellow t-shirt as we record this, so I may not be the best person to ask right now about color. <laughs> So I, I will say, I think this wine is as beautiful in the glass as it is in the bottle. This is a really beautiful, very pale yellow mm -hmm. color. So almost like flax or um, like, like slightly, just, just very, very slightly golden. It's really beautiful. It um, has a little bit of a green sheen to it almost you know when you look mm -hmm. at it it's got that and i forgot to mention this i have another i have another name story for you oh dime so taya means in the native chumash language abalone shell so that kind of you know and abalone shells are they're multifaceted, multicolored, reflective. They change in the light. And I feel like the color of this wine is really indicative of that name. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Okay, so we've got a nice kind of golden flax with a hint of green color in there. Let's do, let's check out this nose. Take a deep whiff. What are you getting? What are you getting out of this glass? I'm getting summer and grass. Mm-hmm. Some some kind of um, grapefruit, say pear. You know, some herbal elements. Definitely some floral elements. A little bit of maybe gardenia or honeysuckle. Mm, the honeysuckle are in bloom oh, out here. Jealous. And there and something a little earthy too, kind of uh, like a nuttiness or almost like like dried tea leaves. It's a complex nose for 
you know, a white. Yeah. It's it, You can tell it's going to have some richness and just from the nose that it's going to take your palate on a little bit of a ride, I think. I cannot wait to hear your impression of your first sip. It's it's very gentle as we're starting out. It's not overpowering. I don't find it to be kind of like the way you have described other California whites of like big, bold, buttery. It's it's very... Um, That's that garbage Chardonnay you know I don't like. We're going to have to drink a Chardonnay. This is not that. No, it's not that. We're going to have to drink a Chardonnay on the show one time. And there's sort of this weight or this viscosity, I feel like, that that kind of mm-hmm. points to the the higher alcohol content in this white. I'm noticing that texture in my mouth. Yeah, this is definitely, you know, a good, solid, medium-bodied white. It definitely has some weightiness. It has a little bit of a light, velvety texture to it. Um, that viscosity, you really do feel it in your mouth. Yet, as you mentioned, it's still really delicate. The flavor notes are are very soft, but they're there. So I'm getting a little bit of tropical notes. I'm getting some like papaya in the background. I'm definitely getting some some pear, some citrus, more on the Meyer lemon side, less on the grapefruit side, though. Um, and that's coming across probably because uh, I would say this wine has you know, medium to medium high acidity. So it's got some good acid to it to stand up to that body. And, you know, the other thing that I really like about this wine and that makes me appreciate the name Taya, meaning abalone shell so much more, is it does have a really nice minerality to it, which we all know by now is my fucking favorite. And I feel like the finish on this wine is almost like, you know, an almond, like a sea salted almond. It's got a little bit of that earthy, earthy nuttiness, but it's got a little bit of that sea salt finish to it. And that's, you know, really being created by the climate and those breezes coming off the ocean. Yeah, I think the the sea salt finish you're talking about is really true. I was I was almost thinking this is it it almost is like a little bit of the acid lingers for me, um, mm-hmm. but in a way that that is very pleasant. Sort of like the way after you you eat a slice of um, orange or you have a sip sip of lemonade, you have that like lingering citrus acid. Uh, it's really lovely. Yeah, I am a huge fan of this wine. This is like a California Gateway White for me. <laughs> Yeah. And I really do love Rhone's. It's hard to go wrong for me with these varietals. And they're they're not as well known here. And so, you know, I encourage everyone to like, just go peruse your local wine shop, pick one up, give it a whirl, see how it goes. You know, if you can't find Kita, do try, I mean, try and find Kita. But if you can't, find yourself a nice Rhone style white blend um, that you can kind of sink your teeth into this summer. Especially if, like, for July, it's hot, it gross. You want something refreshing and light that's going to pair well with really crisp meals. So I feel like that's getting a little bit into our pairing section. So speaking of meals, what would you pair this wine with? Two things immediately come to mind. A big farmhouse salad with all sorts of shit in it like all the fruits all the veggies all the nuts just I love to eat 
big giant salads um, in the summertime. And I do, you know, I like to do like different types of leafy greens and I'll chop up a bunch of different herbs, whatever I get in my CSA or community supported agriculture box and throw them in there. And I made it, I actually made one last night that had heirloom tomatoes and white nectarines and onions and cucumbers and fresh corn. And it was delicious. And I, you know, I, okay, so full disclosure, I may have had a bottle of keto wine last night with that salad. <laughs> Look, that's just research. Well, to be fair, it was the rosé, but... <laughs> I was like, oh, look, look what I got in my fridge. Okay. <laughs> but this this wine would actually go really well with that salad, too. The other thing, and so, you know, that's that's a, that salad is happy for everyone. I just dressed my salads in the very Spanish way, which is olive oil and a little bit of lemon and salt and pepper done. But for you carnivores out there, I want to eat a shit ton of oysters and drink this wine. Like, I just want to sit out somewhere with an ocean view, order some oysters, drink this wine. So this is hilarious to me, because when I was thinking about this segment as we were coming up to it, the immediate thing that came to mind to me was seafood, which is hilarious because as a vegan, I can't think of the last time that I had seafood. But immediately, like, that, that yeah. is what feels appropriate to this wine. And I was also, like, I just did a quick Google of, like, you can substitute certain kinds of mushrooms oh. for oysters. And I was doing, like, a quick Google of, like, okay, what can I do? I can get some king mushrooms. I can get some enoki oh, mushrooms and prepare them the way you would prepare some, oysters. Like, and lobster, I'm just... Like, grilled lobster mushrooms? Ugh. Mm. Would be so good with this. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're just woody enough um, and, you know, they have some of that mineral saltiness to them naturally. That's, oh, that sounds so good. Mm -hmm. There's one of my favorite restaurants in Barcelona makes these wood oven roasted like mushrooms. And it's just like this giant, I actually think they're oyster mushrooms. And it's this giant clump of mushrooms that they season with olive oil, salt, and pepper, roasted in this wood fire oven, and then just bring it out to you. And delicious, it's, delicious. I would drink this wine with that dish for sure. Yeah, but seafood, yeah. mushrooms, like you're not going to go wrong with any of these things. Yeah, yep. Actually, too, I'm making fish tacos tonight, and I may have to open up another bottle of this. <laughs> What's happening in the background at Drea's house is that she's hosting her parents and they have already started drinking this wine. So you will definitely need a second bottle. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to be nice, too, because they are going to watch my child, i.e. my chewiegle, um, while I go be a garbage person and drink a lot of wine in Mexico. So here we are. <laughs> OK, so, so what would be a situation where you would drink this wine? Girl, I just told you I want to look at an ocean and eat a shit ton of oysters. <laughs> no, for this wine. Um, let me think. Let me think. What would, what would be a good situation for this? Well, while you think about that, I will say I also was, I was also thinking. So I, I took a trip in college to St. Martin um, as like a 
and have always dreamed about going back because I went as like, I, I went with a family that I was babysitting for. So I was like partially working and partially like just enjoying being at a villa and the pool and the seaside. And I would love, love to go back and just drink yeah, why, this wine why by the we pool, doing by that? the beach. Why aren't we doing that? Just, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know why we're living. Yeah, we're done. We are. Can't we take our own advice at the beginning of this podcast episode and like take two weeks off and go to the, um, I mean, the Caribbean? We can I'm just saying. Um, but I agree. So I do think like this is a great beach wine, like to sit out on, you know, do a beach bonfire or, you know, take a beach picnic. I actually, there is a little wine bar in La Jolla, California, that I used to go to a lot when I lived in La Jolla. Uh, and I recently went up there and just kind of hung out. And they've got this beautiful patio that faces the, the ocean, the cove in La Jolla. And they um, they also happen to have Kita Rosé on their menu. So I got a ball that and just hung out and, you know, had some, had some olives and watched the ocean. And it was great. So anything where you can be close to the water... Um, to kind of feel the connection to this. Oh, you know what? Here we go. Look, you want to be bougie about it? Let's be fucking bougie about it. Get a yacht. <laughs> oh my God. Get Or get a friend with a yacht. Do what you got to do. Take this wine to said yacht. Lie out on yacht deck drinking this wine as the spray of the ocean missed you. <laughs> As your yacht speeds across the sea. There we go. I can get us a sailboat. You know what? Beggars can't be choosers. I'll take it. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So while we're on our yacht drinking this wine, um, what are what are we listening to? What kind of what kind of what's our jam? What's on our playlist? I mean, now I feel like again I'm just repeating you from two episodes ago. But Harry Styles, Watermelon Sugar. Really. <laughs> oh, you disagree? What would you I play? mean, I don't have a you know no, I do have a better answer. I have a better answer. Are you ready for this? David Bowie. David Bowie. And play some David Bowie. You don't think he's a little too intense? <laughs> I know that sacrilege. I I'm not even sure if you're I, still on the like, recording I, I, with me. I don't know what to say. I'm fucking speechless. What like what? David Bowie. He's fun. He can be lively. He's a little intense, but it's okay. Sometimes he's a little intense. Oh my god. Okay. Well, what if, like, how about early Bowie? Not late, sad Bowie. Okay. Early Bowie. Like, not okay. like, you know, Lazarus Bowie. Early Bowie. Ziggy Stardust Bowie. Okay. Jumani Williams is this amazing pianist. And again, very subtle, very soft, like we talked about with the first taste of this wine. I think that would pair beautifully with this as just, it wouldn't overpower, it wouldn't distract from the wine, but it would be sort of a nice background, ah, moment. So I think I may have a happy medium to to this. Okay. Esperanza Spalding. Yeah. Yes. Just, you know, she's mellow, but she's got just enough intensity. There's some variation to the rhythms and her voice. She she takes you on a similar journey that this wine does, but with your listening. Um, and I love her. So I feel like that maybe, you know, we could listen to that on the yacht. We could listen to that in the apartment. All purpose. 
We could invite, we could invite her, her. To come hang out with us on the yacht. So she is now also the celebrity we want to drink this with. Great. <laughs> All right. What are we, as we're listening to Esperanza Spalding, either on our yacht that we have somehow managed to procure or in your apartment, trying to stay out of the New York swelter, what are we reading? You are going to hate me. Oh, if you say some Jane Austen bullshit, I am going to slap you. <laughs> I watched oh, Emma yesterday, and this wine is the exact color of her oh hair. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our colonialism episode. <laughs> I know, I know, which is why, like, what I would actually be, what I think would actually stretch me and be interesting and be an interesting pairing with this wine would be uh, Linda Hogan, who is a Chicksaw uh, novelist, essayist, and environmentalist. She was also born in Denver, so you know she's already How in my heart. Did you? Um, she's an incredible poet. I How love her How did you work. manage to both offend um, me and steal my thunder in one fell swoop? Ah! <laughs> that was my pick. Linda Hogan. All right, okay. All right, what? So Emma no. and Linda Hogan. No, n- not Emma. No. Um, what? Okay. What from Linda Hogan are you? Re- if you can recommend a work to our listeners, which one of her works would you recommend that they start with? I think go go to the beginning. Go to Calling Myself Home. I would recommend Power, her novel about the Florida Everglades and um, the Sacred Jaguar. So... You know, she's, I think she's such a powerful force and such a lyrical writer. She just strings words together in such a beautiful way uh, and has that, that balance of that delicate verbiage and those sharp um, shifts and poignant notes. And so much like this wine. So great. You know, somehow, despite your love of all things Jane Austen we if we could just like get rid of that we'd literally have the same brain (laughs) (laughs) all right so in addition to inviting um Esperanza Spalding to our party who else are you re-drinking with you know I wouldn't be mad about again I'm now in poet mode I wouldn't be mad about drinking with Sherman Alexie he was one of the first indigenous writers that Um, I read in college, and I think some of his poetry is really fun and funny and, again, subtle. So, Shermie is forever my literary crush. I love him. He's great. I would also like to invite to this party Lucy Tapahanzo, who is an Indigenous poet as well. Um, She was also my professor when I was doing my master's at... The University of Arizona. She is a incredibly sweet, kind lady, and she is so fucking fancy, and I love her for it. She's so fancy. Like, she was always dressed to the nines. Her gatherings were always, like, fancy AF, and I feel like she would really appreciate this bottle. So yeah, I feel like this is going to be this is shaping up to be a really great dinner party for us. On a really great yeah, yacht. With um, oysters and lobster mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a good life. Who are these bitches who get to do this? One day uh, us. 
we can only hope. All right, so those are our pairings uh, for this episode. And if you wanna come up with your own pairings and try this wine, you can purchase Kita Wines direct from the vineyard. Uh, their address is www.kitawines, that's K-I-T-A-W-I-N-E-S dot com. They ship to all 50 US states, so check them out. And check us out, right? So, Anne, where can our listeners find us? You can find us online at, on Instagram at two girls and a grape pod. That's two T W O girls and a grape pod. Uh, you can also email us at the same place two girls and a grape pod at gmail.com. You can try tweeting me, but like, good luck with that. Um, and know you know, if you enjoy what we're doing, if you liked this episode, please, uh, subscribe to our podcast in whatever podcast player you listen, give us a rating review. All of that helps us, um, to expand what we're doing and to share our ridiculous thoughts with other people. Um, so if you are enjoying them, you know, pass them along to somebody yep. else. Um, and we've got some exciting stuff coming up. And so our next episode is dun, 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 episode 10. We made it to 10. Uh, and we are going to feature a bottle of wine for under $10 for our 10th episode. So um, for all you budget savvy drinkers out there, that's going to be one to watch for. Um, and we are about to take two girls and a grape on the road. So we're going to have some broadcasts from some really fun locations that I've been working hard to scout. So um, lots of cool stuff coming up as we move through the summer. And with that in mind, I'm going to pour myself another glass of this wine, get myself some poetry and try to pretend I am not melting in the New York heat. Have a nap, girl. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Keto Wines, and salud. Salud.